Welcome to another episode of whatever we're calling this. The podcast of comparative literature and cultural studies at University of Arkansas. Today, we invited Dr. Manuel Olmedo Govante to talk about the benefits of using video games for teaching. Dr. Olmedo is an assistant professor at the University of Arkansas. He holds a PhD and a master in Hispanic and Luso-Brazilian studies from the University of Chicago. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Manuel Olmedo. Dr. Olmedo, thank you for accepting the invitation. It is my pleasure. Thank you to you. Uh, Dr. Romero, uh, okay, the, this series, uh, we are presenting new faculty at the University of Arkansas, but also we want to get some benefits for graduate students who are working on, on projects, dissertation. And in your case, uh, we will talk about video games. But first, uh, I know that people, in my case, we're struggling on writing dissertations. So the first question that I have for you is, what was your dissertation about? Huh. Uh, well, my dissertation was kind of uh, extravagant. Uh, it dwelled on the unexplored interconnections between uh, two worlds that uh, seemingly have nothing in common. Uh, those two words are those two worlds are literature and the world of martial arts, um, particularly the world of fencing in the 16 and 17 centuries in the Hispanic world. Um, so yeah, by studying those interconnections, I yeah I realized that uh, fencing uh, was the central uh, was central to early modern Hispanic culture, uh, much more than football. What football? Uh, European football, right? Or real football? <laughs> uh, uh, it is to, to Latin America and Spanish society. Uh, way more, way more. It mediated all kinds of uh, social and cultural uh, relations. And, and of course, they, um, it was crucial to define class, uh, gender, and racial identity. So, yeah, in a nutshell, that, that was what my dissertation was about. Now, Dr. Olmedo, there is, um, you mentioned interconnection. So one mm. of the concerns that PhD students have is when they finish and they start applying for jobs, what is the next project that they need to focus after finishing their dissertation? So in that way, I, I'm wondering what is your next project or what are you working right now? Mm. Um, well, my next project, um, I always invite the students to to, to, to reflect on their own on their own research and see what spin-offs or where does that work lead you uh, to go. Uh, in my case, for example, when I was studying um, the world of fencing and doing archival work, I realized that Afro-Spanish uh, people massively uh, participated in the world of Fencing. Uh, it was um, a sport or a martial art that was specifically and particularly popular among uh, Black Spaniards, both uh, enslaved and free. So, yeah, I naturally uh, went into that direction, right? Uh, I studied uh, more 
Uh, and I'm currently, for example, uh, working on uh, a critical edition of a play, a not very well-known play called El Valiente Negro in Flanders, the black, the valiant, the valiant black man in Flanders, uh, which is an amazing play, early modern um, Spanish play by Andres de Claramonte that features a black hero uh, whose enemies are not, he's a black soldier uh, whose enemies are not so much the uh, rebel Dutch in this case, in the wars of Flanders, but uh, their fellow, their comrades, uh, and he's fighting white supremacy within uh, the army. So it is a very, very interesting and very, and a play that, that, that it, it is extremely relevant, right? That uh, touches on a critical issues, uh, current critical issues. So that's, that's where I'm uh, uh, right now. Okay, uh, Dr. Romeo, is that connected to the, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I guess that you published an article based on El Negro de Flandes. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm saying that the right name because I, I do not have it right now. So yeah. it, they are connected, right? This critical edition with, with this. So it's, it's kind of like an extension of that article? Yes, uh, I, you could say that, yes. Um, not really an extension. Uh, but that article was definitely a first step into that direction. So basically I was reading all these fencing treatises, right? And um, on the other hand, I read this play, El Valiente Negro in Flanders, uh, The Valiant Black Man in Flanders. Um, and I, I read uh, what the critics uh, have said about that play. And basically the consensus was that this play was an exception because who would imagine that uh, uh, the Spanish people in the early modern period would conceive a black, virtuous, courageous hero, right? Uh, the critics argued, and I mean, assumed that uh, that was a rare exception that had to mean something else, right? So critics were kind of wrapping their heads about um, this representation. Uh, when I found that in one fencing treatise, uh, a master, a fencing master, uh, devotes pages and pages talking about about black people, right, and talking about um, talking about race, basically, right? literally in their words, uh, what kinds of black fencers could you find and how to fight them? Um, so. What struck me is that he, his, view, his vision was uh, positive, right? Positive. He saw black men or a, a mucho numero de ellos, right? A, a great number of them, quote unquote. Uh, he saw them. He saw them as uh, uh, intelligent, virtuous, courageous, clean, articulated. And all those uh, and, and all uh, positive uh, qualities, right? So this uh, fencing and and also he 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 went on uh, with a list of specific traits of the best kind of black swordsman. Uh, what I found is that this uh, specific list, which is a ten-item list, uh, applied perfectly, meticulously to the characterization of this black hero, uh, Juan de Alba, 
uh, in El Valiente Negro en Flanders, right? So the idea of this black hero was not an exception, was not a, a, a weird thing, or it was not a metaphor of anything else. It was a common martial art discourse of the time that was uh, at least partially influenced by the active participation, active agency uh, of uh, black swordsmen in their time, right? So, so after that, I say, hey, why don't I uh, edit this play that very few people have read? Uh, absolutely no one uh, in English. So I, I, I had the privilege to collaborate with uh, the leading voice in uh, or one of the leading voice uh, of uh, black studies in the, in, the, in the Spanish early modern period, uh, Baltasar Tramolinero, and uh, um, and also collaborated with a translator, Nelson Lopez, and together we are we gathered this uh, the first critical edition, bilingual Spanish to English, side-by-side -side edition of El Valiente Negro en Flandes that I think is going to have, uh, to perform well because it's it, it really is a, such a relevant, uh, uh, it feels such a current, it, it could have been written uh, yesterday, right? Uh, with minor adaptation. No, and that, well, that, that sounds fascinating, Dr. Romero, and, and congratulations on, on, on this project. Okay. So you have been mentioning martial arts, uh, literature, you have experience on archive, but something that is strikes me a lot was that uh, for like the next semester or next year, next academic year, there is one class that you are offering and it has a connection with Pokemon. So can you tell us a little bit more about this class and Pokemon? Yes, I mean, uh, since a long time, since at least, 2014, I have been thinking about how to implement video games uh, in, in the Spanish curriculum. Uh, I organized a symposium, I think it was yeah, 2013 at Villanova University, so when I was a, a graduate student, a master's student. Uh, and since then, I have been thinking and thinking and reflecting on the issue. Uh, Actually, it was two years ago in a at a conference at uh, the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where I met a graduate student who told me about this, uh, this video game. And this video game is a fan game. It's a video game made by fans, but it looks uh, absolutely uh, polished and finished. And it looks like an original Pokemon uh, Pokemon game, and um, with the uh, specificity that this game uh, takes place in Spain or in Iberia, right? Spain and Portugal. Uh, so students can play uh, a normal Pokemon game. So you, you play the role of a, of, a, of a young man or a woman who travels from city to city, collecting badges and defeating team leaders and training their Pokemon, uh, with the difference that instead of going to fictional uh, made-up uh, cities, they are going to cities in Sevilla, right? Uh, in, in Spain, such as Sevilla, Madrid, uh, Valencia, Barcelona, etc. 
and, and learn about uh, their culture, learn about their geography, learn about also the stereotype, um, all, all, uh, all, all of them, right? So I thought that this was uh, an amazing opportunity and I redesigned my course on uh, the survey of Spanish literatures around this uh, video game. Uh, and now the video game, basically the final project is completing the video game. The more you play, uh, the more badges you collect and then the more you progress in the game, uh, the higher your score um, and, and all of that, right? That the, the game is simple. Every, every week students have to critically reflect on a specific point of the video game. And, and what they have learned. And then we are learning about, you know, the, the hallmarks and, 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 and important aspects of critical literature, for example, critical history. And that the, the game really uh, supports that because in this Pokemon game, if you go to Valencia and fight the gym leader, uh, the, you, you realize that the gym leader is El Cid that you that you learned in the course uh, at the beginning, right? Um, medieval, uh, the most famous uh, medieval uh, epic hero. Um, so it, it is an exciting game, an exciting opportunity. Students really enjoy it uh, because they, they believe they are cheating. They, they believe <laughs> they are uh, taking advantage of me. So they say, hey, I, I waived an exam by playing uh, a video game. So the, the professor is, is dumb. Uh, what they have not realized is that they have been playing uh, over a hundred hours and doing that in complete Spanish immersion, uh, reading in Spanish and and you know navigating menus in Spanish, and and they have learned a lot, right? And they know where every city in Spain is, and uh, and they know things that not even I could teach. Uh, because they feel some random or they, uh, they address Spanish politics. That is something that we rarely teach. I mean, we, we teach the, the broad stuff, right? right. The dictatorship and stuff, right? But we, you, you never uh, teach the, the minutia of, of, of Spanish politics, you know? And, and this, this, um, this video game does, right? So it's, it is a fantastic opportunity for students to just go to Wikipedia and learn more, right? And that is what they are actually doing in one of the assignments. So yeah, overall, I, I recommend uh, everyone uh, using this game. The name is uh, Pokemon Iberia. It's a free game, open, not not open, but a free game that- Right. Um, there is. Dr. Olmedo, I, I, I really enjoy that project. And if I were an undergrad or a student, for sure, I will enroll in this class. But I am uh, also sure that there are some people, some professors, that they might have some concerns about this type of approach. So what would you tell them about using and the benefits, of course, of using video games for teaching? Uh-huh. Uh, so far, I honestly have not found um, any specific concerns because my course still covers the, both the canon and the alternative canons of okay. Spanish cultures since the early, the, since the Middle Ages, we start with El Cid, 
up until the late 20th century, right? So they think the, the, one of the major uh, yeah, things that you have to, to care when you are implementing video games is that you are not, uh, that that does not go against the quality of your program, right? Or you are okay. learning text, right? Um, it is just that instead of being, I don't know, in, in this specific case, uh, uh, no, it's it, it really is an extra activity. The the students really are uh, uh, devoting more time to the video game, right? Um, the way it is uh, uh, organized in the in the syllabus. So apart from that, I don't know. They are they are uh, they are caveats, right? That so, for example, access to uh, technology. Not all students, sadly, not all students have access to a to a laptop, right? So, uh, so some have to rent a laptop from the student union, and that can be um, well a problem by itself because then you have to install the game every right. week, and well, it's 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 it is a, a load for the students, right? It's one more thing to take to take care. Of, um, Thankfully, we have a digital humanities student uh, studio uh, that offers support to these students. Uh, that is a concern, right? And but then it is a generational thing, right? A generational thing, right? Uh, Twenty years ago, it would be unthinkable to apply a video game because a, a, a minor percentage of the population played video games and only uh, small kids, right? Uh, that is not the case anymore. And my experience is that uh, undergraduate students, all of, not all of them, but the majority have played video games and, and, and also women, right? That they are a minority in the gaming world. That is, that is true. Uh, they, there is no equal access to video games, sadly. But uh, even with women, at least half of them feel confident, right? And they they don't, it's, it's not the case anymore that they feel excluded, actively excluded from the gaming world as they were when I was a child, for example. Right? So there are, there are concerns to, to, to be mindful, right? But overall, I think it's, it's a good, it's a positive experience. No, and thank you for sharing your project. Now, you mentioned the, uh, a little bit about your childhood. So I, I was curious, what kind of games uh, did you used to play? Mm. In my case, I, I remember I play, uh, I, I do not remember right now the title, but it was soccer and the names were super weird. That was like a random names. Uh, Mario, Mario 64 one, was one of another that I played a lot. And of course, GoldenEye that I played with my cousin. So in your case, what, what, what kind of games did you used to play? So I'm a millennial, so I played, uh, I mean, I have a video game console since, I don't know, since I was three years old. I had a <laughs> Game Boy. I had a Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh, but then I was more of a Sony uh, kid. I, I, I like my PlayStation better than um, Nintendo. Uh, I always thought that Nintendo was for kids, even though I was a kid, <laughs> but I didn't want to, to think I was. 
So I always thought uh, that Nintendo was for kids and that Nintendo were kind of soulless. Like, it, 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 I, I don't know how to tell, but it was, for me, Mario, Kirby, uh, even Zelda, they feel cold. And it's, it's, a, it's a very impressionistic, right? It's a very, right. uh, it's an opinion, obviously. So I, I like Sony. I like these uh, big uh, AAA um, franchises. I love the Metal Gear. Um, and of course, Final Fantasy, my favorite franchise. I played uh, all of them, obviously. Uh, and my favorite, Final Fantasy VII, is my favorite. Uh, so I guess I like more story-driven video games, right? Those are the video games that help me understand that video games are the art form of the 21st century, the same way that film was, used to be uh, the media, right? The medium of the 20th century, right? So yeah, story-driven video games or narrative-driven video games really uh, made me appreciate uh, video games as what they are, not as uh, brainless uh, pieces of uh, entertainment, but as uh, sophisticated uh, human products, right? Uh, sophisticated um, cultural products, right? Um, that have many layers of interactivity, many layers of interpretation, and uh, an exciting opportunity for uh, development and, and, and spur your imagination. Yeah. So yeah, more of a PlayStation uh, kid and Final Fantasy, my favorite. I still play uh, Final Fantasy on a regular basis, I would say. So for the people that are listening right now, and if your kid is next to you, keep in mind that for Christmas, they can get a video game because they are a very sophisticated tool and they are not brainless. So keep in mind that for the people who are listening to us now, because you are talking about the 21st century, you're a, a millennial, so maybe people are, of course i'm curious what are you playing right now which video game huh. i mean i'm i read a lot of outlets media outlets about video games and i i almost research about uh, <laughs> the video game industry is not i i don't do it for as as part of my my job sadly uh but um I, I really keep keep an eye on the industry. However, I only play old games, or mostly I play old games, games from my from my childhood. Um, yeah, I mean, I I yeah, I play games from consoles from previous generations. I play my Final Fantasies. I, I mean, for me, video games are also uh, comfort. Comfort food, the, the comfort food, or um, the, the equivalent of uh, comfort food, right? So when I want to feel and to go back, right, to a, to a time in which video games were liberating, right, that I could do in my video games things that, um, well, that, that I couldn't do in my, in my normal life, right? Or that I could improve, right? Uh, video games are, are great because they teach you that failing is okay. That failing is just um, uh, well, it's an opportunity to learn, right? And, and playing a game is learning again, right? Uh, not only talking about video games, but games in, in general. 
So yeah, that sensation that uh, failing is a kind of, of progress is really empowering, really liberating. And I really like to tap into that part of, of me, right? that, that, that experience. And video games are also very accessible. I couldn't play sports. Right? I'm not a very athletic person. And I couldn't play sports for many health reasons. Uh, so for me, video games allowed me to, to, to develop as a, as a person to physically develop because you know that, that the brain is part of the, your body we right. like it all, and and also mentally uh, develop right uh so yeah yeah uh, i play basically yeah i, I play a, an insane amount of hours to uh to the remake of a video game that i that i love so much the name is team hospital and the remake is called it's called two point hospital and it's a game in which you manage a hospital, uh, the resources, uh, human resources, and economic, uh, and the economics of a hospital. You develop the the, the, the outlines, and the rooms, the policies, and, and all of that. And I find it like uh, liberating. Well, no, th th that's right. It's a form to liberate yourself. It's a form to have fun at the same time. It's a it's another way to to use sources in a different way. Now, Dr. Olmedo, because the, the idea of the podcast as well is, is to promote uh, bilingualism. Now we're going to switch up the last two questions in Spanish para liberarnos de una forma y, y, <laughs> y poder hablar eh, nuestro idioma. Entonces, le tengo una pregunta que de pronto la, la, bueno, las personas eh, saben que usted es de España, pero nos podría decir de qué ciudad y qué es lo que más extraña de su ciudad? Ah, bueno, yo soy de, del sur de España, de, de Sevilla, eh, concretamente de un pueblo cerca de Sevilla que se llama Sandúcar la Mayor, en la, en la provincia de, de la Aljarafe, la región de la Aljarafe, eh, pero yo estudié en Sevilla, en la Universidad de Sevilla, y, y bueno, siempre digo que soy de allí. Eh, ¿Qué echo de menos? Bueno, echo de menos muchas cosas, echo de menos la familia, eso es, eso es lo más importante a, absolutamente, ¿no? La familia y, y los amigos, ¿no? Eh, no lo sé, realmente no, no me gusta centrarme en lo que echo de menos, sino en lo que, en, bueno, en, en lo bueno de cada, de cada lugar, ¿no? Cuando voy a Sevilla, intento ir todo lo que puedo, eh, intento viajar. Eh, Ahora mismo en diciembre voy a volver para las navidades. Eh, bueno, me gusta la comida, evidentemente. Me gusta el, el estilo de vida. Eh, bueno, son cosas que no, no se tienen aquí y que se echan de menos, evidentemente. Pregunta. Con el caso de la comida, eh, bueno, con mi familia hemos explorado la zona, tratamos de acomodarnos a lo que hay, pero no he visto mucha comida española. Entonces no sé cómo... ¿Cómo usted hace en eso? ¿De dónde compra los insumos? ¿Alguna tienda específica? De pronto para las personas de la zona que quieran degustar comida española, ¿dónde pueden comprarla? ¿Dónde pueden comprar eh, productos? No sé si ha encontrado como el oasis eh, del gourmet <risa> español en la zona. Realmente no, porque intento adaptarme. Es como que tengo dos vidas diferentes. El, el, el Manuel de Sevilla es completamente diferente al al Manuel de, de Estados Unidos. Y aquí en Estados Unidos, para cenar, me hago un pad thai o me hago un, un, 
un arroz frito, que es algo que jamás se me, se me ocurriría hacer <risa> en Sevilla, ¿no? Eh, y, y viceversa, ¿no? Hay ciertas cosas, ¿no? Que, bueno, que uno, eh, bueno, se, se adapta, ¿no? Eh, sobre todo lo que he hecho de menos el, en Sevilla es el, el, la comida fuera, ¿no? La comida en los restaurantes, ¿no? Que es diferente, simplemente, ¿no? Es con platos más pequeños, ¿no? Eh, más variedad, ¿no? no y es más barata también, entonces uno pues va con una, más gusto. Eh, pero sí, no, intento adaptarme, ¿no? Y, o sea, adaptarme, ¿sí? de, disfrutar de, de lo mejor en cada, en cada situación, ¿no? Doctor Olmedo, bueno, para terminar el episodio, usted mencionó que usted se adapta, eh, su investigación veo que ha ido adaptándose, se acomoda, cambia, siempre está de una forma recursiva trabaja ahora con la parte de video game, te muestra que es una persona que busca cómo adaptarse y cómo impactar. Entonces, en ese orden de ideas, ¿qué se le podría decir a los eh, estudiantes graduados que estén comenzando maestría, doctorado? ¿Cómo es el proceso de adaptación o qué consejos debería uno tener en cuenta para adaptarse a graduate school para adaptarse a un nuevo lugar de trabajo y cualquier tipo de conexión que tenga con adaptar, porque hoy hablamos mucho de, de cómo ser flexible de acuerdo a su perfil. Sí. Mi consejo es que, que disfruten. Mi consejo es un consejo muy, muy excéntrico. Es que, que, que encuentren el amor en lo que, en lo que hacen y que, y que intenten eh, gestionar, cambiar todo esto es un poco fondo, ¿no? Pero, pero, pero es así, ¿no? Cambiar todo lo que no, lo, lo que no les levante pasión, ¿no? De lo, lo que no les, les, les muevan, ¿no? Que, que, busque, que busquen una motivación intrínseca en, bueno, formar parte de una comunidad académica, de estudiar y de aprender, ¿no? No, mi mensaje es eso, ¿no? Encuentren el amor, es un mensaje positivo porque sinceramente pienso que, que, que es para es, es para celebrar no y es para alegrarse no conozco absolutamente a ningún estudiante que le haya ido peor después de hacer, es, realizar estudios graduados eh, eso es así sé que hay mucha negatividad en el respecto de que el mercado no es lo que era y efectivamente no es lo que era y de que bueno porque es estudiar un Realizar estudios eh, doctorado, do, doctorales en algo tan frívolo como humanidades, algo tan frívolo como videojuegos, eh, como la esgrima, eh, es una mala idea o es, es, una, es algo para lo que hay que estar triste y hay que pensar en, en adaptarse. ¿no? Y, y yo aquí, aquí no usaría esa palabra. ¿no? Eh, adaptarse es algo... Algo, es una visión muy negativa, en mi opinión, ¿no? Es algo de tolerar lo que uno está haciendo, ¿no? Eh, no hay que adaptarse, pero sí eh, adaptar, eh, bueno, cambiar, sí, lo que no nos hace del todo felices, ¿no? Y aprender a, a que te guste algo, ¿no? Buscar la felicidad, ¿no? Hay mucha libertad, ¿no? Eh, yo entré en un programa en la Universidad de Chicago, que es donde estudié el doctorado, eh, entré en un programa típico de, de cultura ¿no? y de literatura y acabé con una beca en, en España practicando esgrima antigua ¿no? eh, y, 
iba, bueno, por las tardes, ¿no? A pelear con espadas, ¿no? Y eso era parte de mi investigación, ¿no? Eh, y me pagaban por ello, ¿no? Eh, hay espacios de libertad, ¿no? Y hay, hay, hay formas de, de, de acabar haciendo lo que uno quiere, ¿no? Y lo que uno le gusta, ¿no? Y, y hay una maleabilidad, ¿no? Una flexibilidad y necesidad de, de decir, bueno, hay que adaptarse y hay que hacer lo que el mercado manda. Eh, porque el mercado es muy traicionero, ¿no? El mercado nos invita a, a realmente hacer cosas que son malas para nosotros, ¿no? Y de eso va el mercado, ¿no? De, de que uno venda barato para que, para que el otro compre barato, ¿no? Eh, entonces, eh, bueno, eh, invito a los estudiantes a eso, ¿no? A encontrar el amor en los estudios, a encontrar la pasión, ¿no? Y la alegría, ¿no? Y compartir, ¿no? Crear comunidad crear vínculos de gente que está aprendiendo juntas ¿no? y que todo el mundo tiene algo que enseñar eh, a sus colegas ¿no? y a sus profesores, mucho más a sus profesores. Eh, así que tengo un mensaje positivo, ¿no? ¿Cómo me siento hoy? A lo mejor si me preguntan dentro de 20 años, es otra cosa. ¿no? Bueno, muchas gracias, eh, Dr. Olmedo, por su tiempo. Thank you very much, Dr. Olmedo, for accepting the invitation and for being part of this podcast. It, is, it, it has been a, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for, for organizing. Well, it looks like the episode is over. Thank you to the Program of Comparative Literature and Cultural Studies. Thank you to Dr. Olmedo for accepting the invitation. And I hope you join us next time in another episode of whatever we're calling this. Nos vemos. <laughs>